There are dangers and pitfalls along the way, and at times it is a struggle. In fact, I think the word struggle is too mild. It is a violent fight. It's a fight of life and death. And therefore, you cannot consider the Christian life should be automatic from the moment you profess faith in Christ until you arrive home safely in glory. To Israel, they were Christian nationalists. <laughs> they believed in the supremacy of the nation of Israel above all of the other nations. Their view of the old covenant of Moses was that it lasted forever. And so they believed in justification by faith, sort of. They did believe that they themselves were saved by grace through faith, and they believed that Gentiles could be saved by grace through faith, but the caveat was the Gentiles must also be made Jewish. They had to be Jews, because the the, the, the gospel was for Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Didn't Jesus say that to the woman at the well? Yes, he did. And therefore, if a Gentile wanted to follow Christ, a Jewish Messiah, they would also need to convert to Judaism. And so this is what they said Paul left out of his gospel. Men, you must be circumcised, because that is the sign of of the Jew, that one is a child of Abraham walking by faith in God. You must keep the dietary laws of Moses. You must observe the Sabbath and the feast. And they had their charge where they could unroll them and show the people exactly how to do this. And so in, in, in analysis, in the view of the Judaizer was that the Christian had to complete the work of justification and the work of sanctification by the law. Turn a few pages over in your Bibles to the third chapter of Galatians, chapter one, uh, verse 1. Galatians 3, starting with verse 1. Paul has heard of this departure from the gospel of grace by faith in Christ. And he's Terribly concerned, of course, and so he's trying to correct the course. And so he writes in Galatians 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians! He calls them fools, and rightly so. It is a fool's errand to pursue joy in Christ through your own performance. It's a fool's errand because it's an impossibility. But you have made yourself an exception to think that you are not like everyone else and that you can do so. And by doing so, you validate yourself that you are worthy, that you are good, that you are righteous. That is foolishness. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, deceived you, mesmerized you, put a spell on you, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. These people, through the proclamation of the Apostle Paul, saw Christ crucified before them. Not visibly, not in a vision. 
preaching of Paul was so filled with the power of the Spirit, they didn't need to see it. The reality of his death was brought home to them. And surely it is true for all of us who are saved here. Though we have not seen him, yet we have believed. Why? Because the Spirit of the living God, through the proclamation of the Word, brought the reality of Christ crucified and resurrected to us that it was as if we could see and hear the blessed Master Himself. We were transformed by the reality that faith brings. So Paul clearly acknowledges they're Christians. This only I want to learn from you. Verse 2, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Of course, it's a rhetorical question, and the correct answer is, let me hear you. Thank you, Brother Craig. Do you all agree with Brother Craig? He's he's the only voice I heard. (laughs) Of course, it's by faith, faith alone. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect? By the flesh. This is not just a matter of justification. It's also a matter of sanctification. In other words, what he's really asking is this. Although you began with the Spirit and the power of the Spirit to transform you. And as we said last night, translate you from the kingdom of darkness where the law of sin and death ruled and had dominion and brought you into the kingdom of His dear Son where the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus rules and is the dominion. He is asking, having started with that work of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish, complete yourself by human effort? That is the whole issue. It's just not justification by faith. It's also sanctification, but you cannot believe in sanctification through the law without destroying the doctrine of justification. And that's why Paul spends the majority of the book on the doctrine of justification. Here's why. Listen carefully. The same way God saved you is the same way He will sanctify you. By grace through faith. There's no other way. And so I challenge you, my friend, If like the Galatians, you have been bewitched, mesmerized, you've been deceived by the deceitfulness of sin to think that God's approval of you rises and falls as the thermometer. That one day it can be good based upon your good deeds and your performance of what you perceive is expected of you. Or it can fall and He is displeased, disapproval, disapproving, because that you did not perform according to this concept of rightness that you carry inside of you. Does this make sense? I'm saying you're guilty of the same thing the Galatians were guilty of. Maybe not as flagrant. You men haven't gone so far as to do some of the things that Paul is describing like circumcision and you're not following some of the festivals of Israel, or you're, you're not so concerned about kosher eating. But at the root, your heart, your heart 
has been bewitched and mesmerized and deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen carefully. First, I know that the majority of these men and women of these churches in Galatia were believers according to the text. You see, the Christian life is not a life of perfection. Any perfectionist here? If I have seemed to describe your heart these last two days, you perfectionist, you performance-oriented folks, it's because I is one. <laughs> it takes one to know one. And I've had to learn through trial and much failure the Christian life is not perfection. Nor is it, listen carefully, a steady climb upward. I've yet to meet one. I've yet to read of one in church history where it was a steady climb upward with no stumbles, no falling at all. There are dangers and pitfalls along the way, and at times it is a struggle. In fact, I think the word struggle is too mild. It is a violent fight. It's a fight of life and death. And therefore, you cannot consider the Christian life should be automatic from the moment you profess faith in Christ until you arrive home safely in glory. And that's what Paul is saying. But second... Paul is marveling that his converts so quickly turned from the true gospel. And we can see, therefore, that the gospel must have had true effect among the Galatians. Had there not been a true conversion from idolatry to the living God, they would not have cared what any Judaizer had said. But do you know what attracted them to the Judaizers? They wanted to please God. And these men came along and said, if you want to grow in your faith and really please God, here's our message to you. And because they desired to be pleasing, also desiring to be right, they fell for this hook, line, and sinker. I want to show you now as we get to the heart of the true gospel, again, this series is not complete until tomorrow. And for you who are just guests, as I had to say last night, just for this service or these last couple of services, I apologize to you. Uh, I came to preach to this church only, but I'm glad you're here. But this is, the, this is the body that God's called me to these days. And so they're going to hear the full message. And you can ask one of them or you can watch it. I think they're videotaping these. But what is underlying all of this? What made the Galatians so susceptible to the teaching that if they would leave the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ and trust Moses instead? And why? What's in you that motivates you so easily to do the same thing? What, what is in you, my friend, that causes you to... Re continually fall into this same trap. Well, it's what I said last night that I want to now unpack in depth the big lie. The big lie. I want you to turn in your Bibles to see where the big lie was first told. And this big lie is told every time you're tempted. It's the same lie. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm hearing an echo. Are you hearing it also, or is it just me? Just me. 
Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Satan is not as creative as you think. He has only one lie. He's learned to adapt it based upon the person he is telling the lie to. But it's still the same lie. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here's attack number one. Satan expands God's command to include all the trees of the garden. Did you notice that? Or have you gotten so familiar with the story, you just kind of passed that by without notice? As God said, you cannot eat of any of the trees of the garden. And by doing that, he's beginning to open the mind of Eve and suggest a lie about God. What's the lie? That God is all about forbidding your delight, your pleasure, your joy, and all He demands of you is strict compliance. That question begins to unravel that thread. It's only the beginning. It's not all there yet, but this is the first tug on the thread. In other words, what's the problem with God? That He would deny you joy and yet requires strict allegiance. Look at all these beautiful trees and you're telling me that God won't allow you to enjoy yourself and indulge yourself and and be delighted in the pleasure of these, this wonderful orchard? You see, his aim is to make the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil dwarf all the goodness of God that was in all the other trees in the garden. He's got to do this to get her to the next step. He's got her to focus on the one tree. And, and what does she do? She replies. Listen to what she says. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. No, 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 no that's, that's not true. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Aha. Attack number two. Verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's attack two. God lied. You will not die. God's not telling you the truth. God's shaving the corners a little bit here. And that means, Eve, God is selfish and He's not good. You can't trust Him to really have your best interests at heart. He says He loves you, but if He loved you, would He withhold the knowledge of good and evil that He possesses so that you could be like Him? You see, that's why He doesn't want you to eat of this truth. is because He wants to keep you under His thumb. He wants to keep you enslaved to Him. that You have to look to Him for direction. You have to look to Him to know what right and wrong is. You can't decide that for yourself because if you ate of that tree, you could know that for yourself and you wouldn't need Him. It's a means of manipulating you to keep you tied to Him. 
That was the attack. And the result is if God can't be trusted and He's not as good as He says, then you have only one choice. Trust your wisdom. Trust you. Now, my friends, that is the essence of every temptation you've ever faced or ever will face. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And there you have what John says is the essence of all sin, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They're all there. She saw that the tree was a delight to her eyes, and she saw that it was desired to make one wise, the flesh, the desire to be wise, and then the pride of life, to be like God in the end, to be like Him. And so here it is. At that moment when she thought that, even before she ate, at that moment something entered into the nature of that woman, and when Adam acquiesced and consented, something entered into him, and here's what it is. It is the sin nature. The corruption of the nature of man. And what is it in, in essence? How would I describe it? A basic distrust of God. That's what I would call it. That is the nature of sin. A basic distrust of God. That God cannot be trusted. And my friends, to the Hebrews 3rd text that we cited, the beginning, this is the deceitfulness of sin. This is it. It appeals to that native and natural distrust that you, yes you sir, you and me have in God. I'm still not fully redeemed. I still have bodily and intellectual appetites that don't trust God. It's called the flesh. It is a part of me still to this day. And I can't just segregate it off and say, well, it's the flesh, that's not me. No, the flesh is part of me, therefore it is me. There's still something fundamental in me that God has chosen in our deliverance to allow it to remain. It's the same reason He allowed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to remain in the garden rather than to fence it off or even remove it. The same reason why flesh still remains in you. Sin says that you, better than God, know what is good for you. You, more than God, know what will bring you joy and pleasure. And that, my friend, is what every temptation is about. You decide what is good for you, or you trust God and obey Him what is best for you. There's the deceitfulness of sin. It says that you really in the end know better than God. And there's something in you that wants to believe that. Only glorification will eliminate that from us. Yes, we will be delivered of it. Our salvation will be then final and complete. 
but we still have to deal with this. And so, I want you to see, when Eve's focus was on the one tree she could not eat, she lost sight of all of the other trees that she could eat. In other words, she lost sight of God's bountiful goodness to her. Satan's strategy was to get Eve to do that very thing, to lose sight of God's amazing goodness and all of the things He had provided for her and her husband. And so the focus now became on the one prohibition. Man, isn't that clever? And that's exactly how He works in you and I. doesn't matter the temptation. doesn't matter. All the flesh does is rage as it's being enticed. I want this thing. I need this thing for my life to be whole, my life to be complete, for joy, for peace, for happiness, for success, whatever. And now you can't see all of the bounty, all of the goodness, all that God has lavished upon you in His dear and beloved Son. You're blind to that. You don't need this one thing. Because if you needed it, you'd have it. Why do I say that? Because God promised to meet your needs. I live by a philosophy. Because we live by faith. We tell nobody our needs. We just pray. And my conclusion is, if I didn't get it today, I didn't need it today. Because my God promised to meet my needs. And so Eve couldn't see oh, how much God loved her. And Adam, and how good he was. All she could see is what she couldn't have. And with that focus, Eve's view of God became distorted. Instead of seeing all the wonderful things, all she could see was the negative command, don't eat from the fruit of this tree. And so, for the very first time, God was seen by Eve in a negative light. She saw him as this selfish lawgiver, demanding, never giving, always demanding from her. He was no longer loving. He was no longer a person in whom she could put her trust. He was no longer kind and good. And therefore, she decided to take the matter into her own hands. She, better than God, knew what was good and pleasurable for her. And that's the same thing that happens to you when you choose to sin. No different. If we were to open up the next 15, 30 minutes and let you pick out one sin after another that you wrestle with, I can show you exactly how your unbelief in God's goodness is involved in that and that Satan is pulling the same strategy on you. And that is the deceitfulness of sin. It appeals to that natural, native part of us that doesn't want to trust in anyone else but us, ourselves. And so that's why Paul would write in 1 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The deceitfulness of sin, there it is. He calls it a deceit. Temptation's focus is on what you cannot have, therefore you lose seeing the good that has already been given to you and is at your disposal. What has 
the enemy's suggestion lately caused you to focus on? What is the prohibition that has become the focus? What is the thing that you believe you need to have happiness? Even though you know it's wrong. Even though you know clearly it's not scriptural. It would break the heart of God and yet there's this strong enticement to it. And it's become the focus so much that you have forgotten every blessing. You have forgotten every kindness. You have forgotten that Jesus died for you. That seems not to matter at this moment. You can't seem to focus on that. Your mind's become obsessed. And when the mind becomes obsessed with the prohibition, you've already slipped. It's a matter of time. With our natural distrust of God and our overinflated trust of ourselves, we forget the goodness of God. Now, how should have Eve and we have viewed God's commandments? In this case, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. How should she really have looked at that? And how should you look at God's commands, positive and negative? We are not under the dominion of the law, and yet we are to live holy. We are to obey God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my, what is the word? Commandments, my laws, my directives, my statutes, whatever you want to call them, it's still law. It's still required of you. Eve should have heard God's command as a declaration of His great love for her in Adam. That's how she should have interpreted it. But Satan deceived her. I, I, I seldom do this, but I feel like you need to hear this from somebody more, more astute, more knowledgeable than me. Now, I've been preaching this for years, not this particular sermon in the way I'm preaching it to you, but I've been preaching Romans 1.25, they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature and creator. Uh, the, cre the creature rather than the creator is blessed forever, all men, for years. But a few years ago, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called The Whole Christ. And in that book, he, he puts it in the first person as if God is talking to Adam and Eve when he gives the prohibition of the knowledge not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I would like to read that to you. It's about three paragraphs. Would you bear with me as I do so? It's really good. Sinclair writes as if God was speaking, I am giving you everything in this garden. Go and enjoy yourselves, but just before you head off, I've given all of this to you because I love you. I want you to grow and develop in your understanding and in your love for me. So this is the plan. There's a tree here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat its fruit. I know you want to know why, don't you? Well, I've made you as my image. I've given you instincts to enjoy what I enjoy. So in one sense, you naturally do what pleases me and simultaneously gives you pleasure also. But I want you to grow in trusting. Are you listening? Are you listening? Say amen. I want you to grow in trusting and loving me just for myself. Because I am who I am. 
Have you heard that before? I, in other words, sorry, Sinclair, you should have added this. <laughs> I am sufficient for your joy and all your pleasure. You don't need anything besides me. You got me, you got all resources. You don't need anything. And I want you to grow in the knowledge of that in such a way it's just not intellectual, but it's experiential, it's real to you. So I'm going to put a tree out here and I'm just going to see if you'll trust me when I tell you don't eat it. Now back to Sinclair. You can only really do that if you're willing to obey me, not because you're wired to, but because you want to show me that you trust and love me. If you do that, you will find that you grow stronger and that your love for me deepens. Trust me. I know. That's why I've put that tree there. I so want you to be blessed that I am commanding you to eat and enjoy the fruit of all these trees. That's a command. Enjoy those trees. That's a command. Do you get that? He just wasn't forbidding the one tree. He was all at the same time commanding them to participate and enjoy His bounty and goodness. That wasn't in the Sinclair. That was my editorial note. But I have another command. What I want you to do is one simple thing. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. I'm not asking you to do that because the tree is ugly. Actually, it's just as attractive as the other trees. I don't create ugly ever. <laughs> you won't be able to look at that fruit and think, that must taste horrible. Trust me, it's fine looking tree. It's so simple. Trust me, obey me, and love me because of who I am and because you're enjoying what I've given to you. Trust me, obey you, me, and you will grow. End of comment. My friend, God has allowed the flesh to remain in you for the exact same reason. How many of you have certain propensities? We all do. The flesh has propensities, inclinations, things that it's attracted to and things it's not. For example, I have never been tempted to rob a bank. I never, I don't ever believe that I shall. I, I won't say that I couldn't. I'm just simply saying, I have no, in my unnatural, unredeemed state, in my natural, unredeemed state, I never wanted to rob a bank. And I certainly don't want to now that I am redeemed. But there are other things that I do have to be on guard and bring out my sword and do violence to. There are propensities. And God, in His wisdom, doesn't deliver you of all of them at conversion, does He? Some of them did cease. They, they no longer have any pull on you. And you find them as utterly disgusting and distasteful as you once loved them. And Satan knows he can't tempt you in that area. Therefore, he doesn't, does he? No, he focuses on the one area that he knows he can get you to see and focus on and forget all the other goodnesses of God. 
You see, the problem is the flesh, and you still have it. That's why you still need a Savior. I'm grateful for the doctrine of justification. I'm grateful that He's regenerated me. I'm thankful that at some point in time, God saved me. But beloved, I know Michael and I know I need as much saving right now as I'm preaching to you as I did the minute before He saved me. I know that sounds strange. I know that's hard to grasp sometimes, especially from new converts who are still enjoying that first love that we all should be enjoying, by the way. But dear friend, it's true. The problem is the flesh. How were the Galatians so easily hoodwinked? Because of the natural desire of the flesh, listen, to pursue joy apart from God. And that's in you, and that's in me. The flesh doesn't, does not and cannot submit to God because it doesn't trust God. The flesh is not going to roll over and play dead. You can't teach it to do that trick. No, you have to be violent with it and you have to bring it into submission as you would a wild beast. It wants what it wants, when it wants, and how it wants it. And within each one of us in this room, saved or unsaved, the flesh with its desire to exalt itself is there and it makes you susceptible to the lie that you, better than God, knows what's best for you. You know better than our loving Heavenly Father what will bring you joy and pleasure. And it was that same flesh that was motivating the Judaizers, and it was the same flesh that the Galatians had that made them vulnerable to their teaching. There's an obscure verse in the sixth chapter of Galatians. We don't pay too much attention to it, but it's very important. It, it unpacks the motive that I'm preaching. Look at Galatians 6.12. Galatians 6.12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. There it is. These would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. What does that mean? It means Thursday night's message. They wanted to be right and appear vindicated within their own minds and to appear like they had it all together to others. They wanted the pride of knowing they had achieved what was required of them in the law by God. They wanted to show how strong and how spiritual they were. That's what this means. They were flesh-motivated, they were flesh-driven, and therefore they were deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and became the messengers of that same deceit. The bottom line is this. You have a natural default position to not want to trust Christ explicitly, but to trust you as well. Well, Brother Michael, you seem to be discounting that we have a new heart and a new spirit, and we have new inclinations, new dispositions. Oh, no, I'm not discounting that. That's tomorrow's sermon. 
I'm just wanting you not to overemphasize what you've been given in the Spirit and by the Spirit and neglect and forget that there's something still native to you. That resists God, that doesn't want to obey Him, trust Him because it doesn't believe He is good. And here's how one can know something in the mind but not believe it in their heart. Look at your own heart right now. Tell me. What is the foundation upon which it rests? Does it really believe God is good in all things? Let the trials come. Let the assaults march on and address you. and Let your world be turned upside down. Then we'll see where your heart naturally reclines. Then the heart will be exposed. Will you say as Abraham, the judge of all the earth shall do right? Will you say as Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or will you say, God, I've served you all these years. I've been faithful to you and this is the way you reward your servants? Those first initial reactions tell you where your heart's been all along. Where is your heart? Do you feel like God's put you on the short change? Do you feel like Asaph, as we mentioned yesterday? Here he is, a man of God, the choir director, the author of hymns we call psalms. Inspired by God to write them. And yet, he's in this self-pity mode where he sees all of his, self, his, his religious activity and performance and obedience as getting him nowhere while the wicked prosper. If the truth be known, many of us are in that same position today. Otherwise, why would God have me preach this? I don't know. I, I don't understand that. I don't think God works that way. I've come to address this church. I've come to address you. And I'm praying that the Spirit of God would give you understanding of your own heart and your own natural proclivities, the flesh and its desire to trust itself and not God. And as we've already stated, there are some, a few of us, whose flesh manifests itself in disobedience to God's commands, which makes it look like a person living according to their own desires as long as they're not scandalous sins. Or it manifests itself in one trying by the power of the flesh to please God and thus find joy in their rightness or the biblical word righteousness. But either way, dear friend, we have to deal with this. We have to take this into our hands by the Spirit and put this to death and keep putting it to death. When you live indulging your flesh, you say, I'm under grace. The lawless were out. I'm under grace. When you indulge your flesh, you lose your joy in God. You lose it. There's no pleasure in God because the indulging of the flesh becomes your joy. You're now distracted from all the good and you're focused on the one thing. And you can't see God, therefore you can't enjoy God. And therefore, there's no fellowship with God in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. No! You become obsessed with trusting what you believe is good for you. And the end is eventual ruin. 
Now, I know we believe in the security of the believer. I know we believe in the perseverance of the saint. I know that no one can pluck me from his hand and that he's given to me eternal life and I shall never perish. But how do I know I'm one of those? The greatest of all tests is because I do persevere. And I do persevere because he preserves me. That when I fall, I cannot go very long or far until he has brought me back, showing me my shame, and wiping my tears, and healing my wounds, and restoring unto me the robe of the righteousness which I never lost. But he, he makes me to see it again. But if you do not pursue what I am saying, and fight the deceitfulness of sin and this natural distrust of God, Paul warns in Galatians 5, verses 19-21, this will be your ruin. Galatians 5, verse 19. Our views of security of the believer, I just think are still not act quite accurate in, in general. We think because we're Christians, we cannot lose in the end. Well, if you're truly His, born again, you can't. That's right. He will preserve you. But again, left to yourself, you could and you would. It requires God to preserve you. And I think that's the part we forget. We just want to automatically default, well, I'm under grace, God saved me, and I'm justified, I'm His child, that's, that's it. Paul doesn't talk like that to these Galatians, does he? He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. You live like this according to your flesh, I don't care how many times you've been baptized. I don't care how many churches you were members of. I don't care if you wrote a systematic theology that was perfect. You're going to hell. You are in jeopardy this morning. You have no, you are giving little evidence that you are really his child and giving me more evidence to believe you're a child of the devil. I'm not angry. I'm anxious for you. Do you hear me? What passion you may think you're seeing is not anger. It is trying to convey with all seriousness your jeopardy at this moment. You cannot just say because you're a child of God and under the grace of God that sin doesn't matter and holiness in the pursuit thereof is just no Nothing more than legalism. No, no, no. Whom God regenerates, He justifies. And whom He justifies, He glorifies. He perfects them. He grows them. He matures them. He completes them. Is the process of your completion underway? Are you growing in holiness? In the fear of the Lord? and the hatred of sin? If not... Beware. 
in departing from the living God. That's exactly how the writer of Hebrews says it, and I think we need to keep saying it the way he wrote it. But for those who are more like me, most of us in this room, when you trust yourself to please God, wanting to please Him, wanting to keep the commandments, wanting to grow, when you, to, when you trust yourself to do that, you lose your joy also. There's several of you in that position this morning. You didn't know what you, Thursday afternoon, maybe last Wednesday, Sunday, all week long you've been wondering, what would you get when I got here? What would you hear? Would you hear something that maybe might encourage you, might revive your heart a little bit, refresh your soul, renew your interest in the kingdom of God? You didn't know. I don't think anybody probably planned on what I've preached. In fact, I didn't until God began to give it to me this week. But I'm here to talk to you. Trying to please Christ in your own flesh. There's no joy in that, my friend. No joy whatsoever. Why? <laughs> because sooner or later you're going to find out you can't please Him in your strength. You just can't do it. Now, I don't want to argue Romans 7 with you, but no matter how you view Romans 7 as the man saved or unsaved, in the end, we can all agree on this. You can't serve God in your strength. If you do, you fail. And when you fail to please God and to live up to your expectations, forget about God's, just your expectations, you begin to lose your assurance that you are even one of His. The joy diminishes and in its place, a lack of assurance. You struggle. Or, if you think you do pull it off, you are able to perform mostly and consistently according to the expectation of what you think God expects of you, well then you're full of pride of self-righteousness. And there your joy is not in Christ either, but in your own performance. And I say to you, your fellowship ceases also with God. Who here this morning would acknowledge before God and even this congregation? For the Bible does say, confess your faults one with another that ye may be healed. Who would say, I've lost joy in God? My fellowship has been diminished I can't remember the last time when the Word was sweet to my taste and I saw that God was good. I can't remember the last time when I launched out in faith and God upheld me and He performed on my behalf. How many of you? Oh, this message is for you. You've been bewitched. You're doing the exact same thing the Galatians were doing. Maybe not in a drastic way as they, but the same in the heart. You cease to trust God fully for your joy, and you're looking for joy in your performance, and it will not happen. And if it does, you're full of pride and need to repent. We just want to trust ourselves or our joy will be, listen to me, in us, not in Christ. That's the ultimate problem.
you can sing about the blood and his forgiveness, his washing. You can sing about being justified by faith and even have a degree of happiness and satisfaction in that. But down deep, you're not rejoicing because in your heart, you feel like you don't measure up. You're not, you're not, you're not doing what you know to do. You're not living as dedicated and devoted to Christ as you ought to. And you're measuring your life by yourself and your joy is quickly depleted. Hear me this morning. Wake up. Thrust off the lie and the deceitfulness of sin. God can be trusted. And He can be trusted with your joy and your pleasure. It's tomorrow. I'll show you how. And how to walk like that. Well, I won't. Paul will. And I pray the Spirit give you understanding. But has the Word of God spoken to you this morning? Has your heart sensed God's voice in the preaching of the Word today? Have you sensed something of His presence here under the hearing of the Word of God and you feel like God has exposed you? God has come and visited you and said, that's you. That's you He's talked about. Well, my dear friend, do not look at that by the lens of the flesh. No, no, no. The flesh hears that and says, shame on you. There you go. You failed God again. Isn't God difficult to please? No. Hear it through the ears and the eyes of the Spirit. That is the love of God. That is His mercy and loving kindness to you this morning. Say, my child, I love you and I want you to grow in fellowship with me. And the only way is you've got, to, you've got to stop trusting you and start trusting me. That's the love of God. That's the grace of God here this morning. It's not the oratory or the passion of a man. I am what I am. I can't help that. I've tried to restrain myself at times at preaching. I try to put the bit and reins in my mouth. It just doesn't work. I'm talking about things here that are so glorious to me. I've lived what I'm preaching to you. I've struggled for years even after being saved with this. I know of what I speak and I know the joy, the joy, the joy that Christ brings when He is my trust and my only trust. May God help you to know it as well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. You know, I sensed last night at the conclusion of the service that many of you were moved by what you heard and maybe even needed time to deal with God about it and wanted to. But we don't know how to deal with stuff like that anymore in our churches. Yeah, you don't need to pray right now. You can look at me. I'll give you one final exhortation. Then we'll pray. You know, I'm not about trying to create things to happen because that would be the flesh and I know what happens with the flesh. It stinks, it rots, it will decay and die. But at the same time, we don't need to quench the spirit of God's dealing with us. Now, I know we've been trained against altar calls and I'm not calling anybody forward here today. But I am asking you to do this. If God has spoken to you, make an altar there where you're seated between you and God. And an altar is just a meeting place with God. And that altar is Christ. Meet with Christ right now. 
Let's not hasten to finish the service. Let's let God do what He wants to do. Let's trust Him that He knows how to fill the cup of joy. Okay? May God give you the grace to obey Him. Just do what God tells you. Leave the consequences to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Galatians. Thank You for allowing that to even happen to those dear saints so that we would be instructed by them for our admonition, how it exposes us. Lord, we're no different. And though we don't have men telling us we've got to become Jews to somehow complete our salvation, Lord, the flesh has enough excuses and arguments. Lord, we ask that you would help us to despise them out, to root them out, to hunt them down, to kill them one by one, so that we trust in you that our faith is only in you and you alone. Lord, for the sinner that is here, I'm asking you, Father, please, not for me, but for the one who sits at your right hand right now, for your precious Son, for his sake, would you make his blood efficacious for them and save them today so that another, another one can cry to the glory of the Lamb. Have your way with us. We're yours. We ask that you would forgive us of our self-trust. Lord, we remember what you said. If any man should follow me, let him first deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Help us to deny ourselves the right to trust in ourselves, that we might trust fully in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.